Welcome to Molotov Now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout, and this is Sherry Ann, and we are the hosts of Molotov Now on the Channel Zero Podcast Network. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. If you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash AL1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. Today on the podcast, we have Echo, an organizer in the world of abortion rights and healthcare access, to talk about the challenges facing abortion clinics and patients, as well as concrete actions you can take to help those in your community with accessing safe abortions. We also have an after-action report from Riot Dad on the ground-level actions happening around the Pacific Northwest right now, supporting the clinics and pushing back against the anti-abortion protesters. Coming up next, we have our local and radical news roundups, as well as some upcoming events happening in the area to share. But first, a message from our sponsor. I'm going to make those pompous academics regret kicking out such a genius. Deciding to build my lab and do my research. The Time Talks Podcast. Have you ever stared at a 500-page book and wish you could just talk to the author about their ideas instead? If so, the Time Talks podcast, part of the Channel Zero Network, is for you, where we discuss history, politics, music, and art with an anti-authoritarian and anarchist perspective. The Time Talks podcast. What's this light? I feel different. The Time Talks podcast. From the Communique, Volume 8. Upcoming events. Come out to support the Black Flower Collective at their second Comrades with Benefits show series, running from October to March. On October 14th, at the Mortuary, at 414 Franklin Street Southeast in Olympia, Washington, we have the Autocratics, Stoned Evergreen Travelers, Schmutzhund, Chance of Ghosts, Wilting, and the Stuntman. Join them for some freaky deaky punk music and support low-income housing and land projects on the harbor. For more information, go to blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. There will be a mutual aid fair at Cal Anderson Park in Seattle on October 29th. On the evening of October 28th, there will be a spooky cover show fundraiser at the Vera Project, fundraising for Free Food Wednesdays, a.k.a. Cal Grill and a Radical Zine Fair and Benefit Show for Kitsap Food Not Bombs, November 11th at the Charleston in Bremerton. Local News As we are going into winter, the city of Aberdeen destroys alternative shelters built by campers. 
On the Wednesday of September 27th, the city of Aberdeen worked with Washington State Department of Transportation in order to demolish the structures the homeless residents had previously built, or assembled to make themselves home on State Street. The campers have been steadily building and preparing their homes for another winter without a cold weather shelter, since Aberdeen refuses to allow them in the city limits. They spent the entire last year finding, hauling, nailing, and tarping whatever building materials they could get their hands on in order to make shelters that meet their needs in terms of space and warmth. The city chose the beginning of winter to come in and smash it all with excavators and throw it into dump trucks. The campers were notified last week that this would be happening to them, and were only given a few days to move their belongings, and no real place to move them to while waiting for the city sweep. The city refers to these eugenic policies as health and safety issues and are pushed by the local hate groups and fascists to use trash accumulation for mostly housed people dumping garbage at camp as an excuse to completely demolish the months of hard work by campers. They will then turn around and likely refuse another cold weather shelter this year while talking out of the other side of their mouth about how much we need shelter. The only reason they want a shelter open is to be able to finally enforce their anti-homeless ordinances. They cannot do so as long as there is no meaningful place for a homeless person to go. They make this clear whenever they mention their inability to enforce their policies as a result of the court ruling Martin v. Boise. As the city's police behavioral health navigator explained, we don't have shelters and we can't move them out without having some place for them to go, Lena Moore said. The thought is clearly... Open a shelter so we can criminalize homelessness in public and force people into the shelter or jail. The eighth volume of the communique shared a living story from a couple who lives at the camp that was swept and mentioned that everyone from campers to city workers to police to social service workers expressed disgust at the action the city was taking, yet none provided any real form of resistance. For example, helping the campers learn their legal rights in situations like these Rights that afford them the same ability to deny entry to their home without a warrant for entry as any house person. No one seems prepared to resist these sweeps, so much as assist them and then complain about the action they themselves are involved in carrying out. Cleaning up Aberdeen. Unsurprisingly, after the last three to five years of the issue being pushed by hate groups like Save Our Aberdeen Please or SOAP, trash is the number one concern facing Aberdeen. According to the city of Aberdeen, its residents, business owners, the unhoused community, the general public, and people who shop within the city. This focus on trash is the result of a directed campaign by local hate groups and politicians to demonize the extreme poverty and difficulty of living in a tent under the bridge. While denying these people shelter, they will complain about the lack of shelter and point to the accumulation of trash at local encampments as a sign that the homeless are a huge money sink. Recently, the city began to publish the costs of citywide cleanups, posting them publicly for all to see, with the implication that the entire cost is for the two encampments under the Chehalis River Bridge. These reports, these reports are also thanks to anti-homeless politicians such as Casey Ann Morrison and Debbie Ann Piricini. These reports are used to further blame the homeless for the building costs facing the city, instead of realizing that the city is the very reason these costs exist in the first place and blaming them. They even say that it is because of trash accumulation that the city now realizes it needs a shelter, not because of the lives lost in the years that they haven't had one, but because businesses in town might have to deal with trash, or the monetary cost of tossing all the garbage dumped down there. It couldn't be clearer who and what these people actually care about, and it isn't trash, and it isn't the unhoused. The newsletter also shares some reporting from the Daily World, who talked to one of the city workers, and his words are illuminating. Go check it out at sabomedia.noblogs.org. After years of failure, Grace Harbor County recreates Homeless Housing Task Force. 
The Grace Harbor County Board of Commissioners voted this month to establish a state-required homeless housing task force to provide recommendations and advice on future homeless initiatives and plans. As the two-thirds majority fascist board selects the members, we can guess that they will stock the task force with cronies and obstructionists. The state mandates that all counties create a homeless housing task force in order to develop a five-year homeless housing plan, something Grace Harbor County previously fulfilled through the Health and Human Services Advisory Board, which drafted the most recent five-year plan to address unmet housing needs, published in 2019. But that board was put on pause during the COVID pandemic due to diminished public health-changing requirements for county boards of health, according to Cassie Lentz, Healthy Places Coordinator for Grace Harbor County Public Health. The county has failed to meet the basic goals of making homelessness rare, brief, and one-time. The graphic in the newsletter comes from the report published in 2019 that outlines the performance benchmarks for the county. The most recent performance report from the county health department shows how out of line with reality these paltry benchmarks were. Instead of making homelessness more rare by reducing the number of estimated unserved literally homeless households to 172 by 2021, we could see that even by 2022, the number has, in fact, risen to 415. The average length of a time a household was homeless has stretched to an astonishing 536 days, a far cry from the estimated 60 days of the original report. This means that people who were homeless when the original report was filed are likely still experiencing homelessness and have been this the entire time. The percentage of households served who actually ended up moving to permanent housing went down to 76%, as opposed to the predicted rise to 80%, meaning that in all aspects this county has failed its homeless population. The newsletter details some problematic specifics of the law requiring this task force and the implications of how it may be stocked, saying the board will be made up of members who have been recommended for the position by the commissioners, meaning if they want to stock the board with business and real estate interests, then that is what we will see. Despite denying multiple shelters, officials emphasized need for homeless shelter. At the same meeting this month, Local government leaders discussed the prospect of greater collaboration in addressing homelessness and the immediate need for a homeless shelter in Grace Harbor County. Aberdeen City Administrator Ruth Clemens delivered a presentation to the Grace Harbor County Board of Commissioners with information about the city's Homelessness Response Committee meetings and recent community surveys, which the city is using to create a homelessness strategy. This strategy seems to be to remove as many resources and rights for the unhoused as they can forcing people out of town when possible. Their terribly written survey was used to present the ignorance and hostility of the local business community in regards to the unhoused. The city said its next steps include looking for permanent shelter options, a process being carried out in secret by City of Aberdeen Mayor Pete Shave and County Commissioner Kevin Pine, both members of the local hate group SOAP, or Save Our Aberdeen Please. They seem to desire to put them in an open-air prison setting and, if possible, force them to work and to treatment. The city administrator even admitted that Grace Harbor is one of the only counties in the state with the issue of having no shelter for people to go to. All this despite having voted for the city to decline a cold weather shelter this last winter season. The city surveyed and hosted meetings for business owners, Aberdeen residents from several areas of town, and to a lesser extent the houseless community. A plurality of responses singled out the government as the group responsible for addressing homelessness, with many others saying it should be some combination of government and other community organizations. The city's own survey demonstrated that people think this is an issue the government is shitting the bed on, a crisis they are not confident that the government can respond to. People have lost faith in the institution of government to accomplish its responsibilities. 
Clemens said a majority of responses indicated the city of Aberdeen has been very ineffective in addressing the challenges of homelessness, and people were very doubtful of the ability of political and civic leaders in that regard. Quote, the people have lost hope and trust in the government's ability to respond to important social issues, Clemens said. If we were able to get a shelter, that would be one of the greatest responses, to be able to provide something like that. That is our ultimate goal. It seems they will only approve a shelter that is outside the city limits, though. Regardless of how terribly they are doing at their jobs, and the desperate need for shelter years ago. In 2021, the Board of Commissioners passed on an opportunity for nearly $1.5 million in state and federal funding to develop a homeless shelter in Aberdeen, with Commissioners Pine and Warney stating that they were not in favor of providing a low-barrier shelter that did not mandate sobriety or treatment for an overnight stay. Inputs from surveys and meetings pointed to the need for shelter and brought to light, quote, both sides of the coin, Clemens said. Business owners raised the problem of people urinating and defecating near store entrances and in nearby alleyways. Homeless people, especially women, indicated that it was their only safe option when nature called in the middle of the night. This is the result of the city removing all portable restrooms from the city last year. Clements said getting people off the street and out of the way of business would benefit the city's downtown core and ultimately help an effort to, quote, rebrand downtown Aberdeen. They know their priorities and are beholden to the business community and real estate and development interests. A big part of the city's current gentrification platform is removing the unhoused from the city. The ruling class wants to impose a high-barrier forced treatment model that is located outside city limits. Clemens then went on to complain about the ability of law enforcement to criminalize homeless existence because of the U.S. Constitution. The 2019 case of Martin v. Boise decided that such behavior, when there is no available low-barrier shelter in town, violates the Eighth Amendment and amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. State and federal grants usually mandate shelters to be low-barrier or without requirements of background checks, program participation, identification, or sobriety. Pine, who represents District 2, which includes Aberdeen, told the Daily World that he would not be supportive of a low-barrier shelter within the city limits. He and Aberdeen Mayor Pete Shave have searched for a shelter site outside city limits for months but have declined to share locations. He also lied and claimed that the funding was the biggest obstacle, ignoring the $1.5 million they turned down in 2021. Shave said in August the pair identified an adequate site just outside of Aberdeen, Pine said recently that a potential site is close enough to services that someone could walk and or take a bus. This interpretation, though, is being made by two able-bodied men on behalf of the entire unhoused community, many of whom are disabled, have pets or shopping carts, and need to be located near to services. Congregate shelters like this are the worst option for housing people. They provide a nexus for abuse and exploitation. The county's vision is having all the homeless people concentrated into one place, with heavy security and forced treatment. Then they can criminalize their existence outside this location and force the decision to go there on them. Food shortages and inflation cause local food banks to call for more community donations. Kay Bramson, a volunteer for the Aberdeen Food Bank, says this year's count of mouths fed is larger than Bramston, a former food bank director and 40-year volunteer, has ever seen. Bramston estimates the food bank fed 36% more people so far in 2023 than at this time last year. That equates to an increase of anywhere from 200 to 1,500 clients per month. Despite people's needs increasing threefold since before the pandemic, food supplies, including community donations, have declined in the same time. Instead of having a variety of local producers, all the food pantries in town rely on the Hoquiam-based nonprofit Coastal Harvest for much of their food supply. 
That supply has dwindled in the last few years for a number of reasons, said Coastal Harvest Executive Director Brent Hunter. Supply chain issues are still lingering from the pandemic, while natural disasters have affected farms where key ingredients are grown. This is a nationwide problem, Hunter said. It's not a Grace Harbor problem. Every food bank network in the country is feeling the same thing. Inflation of food prices have also hit the food banks in town as the shortages of free food donations have led them having to outright buy food to stay open. With prices rising, that could only last so long, Bramstead said. Food costs in western Washington have risen by 4% in the last year. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and items like peanut butter are especially pricey but critical to food boxes the pantry provides. The conflict of capitalism and climate catastrophe are here, and we need to be building systems of dual power outside of control of the state and ruling class. Having our own local food sources is an imperative. Small greenhouses can start plenty of plans for a decentralized network of small plots throughout the county. Through local food sovereignty, we can not only decrease our reliance on a single provider of food as these antiquated systems collapse, but learn how to organize our communities to accomplish countless actions aimed at making our world better. After contributing to the opioid epidemic, Walmart agrees to pay Grace Harbor $5.4 million in settlement. As the county debates even having a single shelter for the increasing number of people on the streets, claiming funding as a reason they can't seem to open up a shelter, the Washington Attorney General's office announced that more than $60 million to combat the fentanyl epidemic will soon be coming to Washington. These resources are the result of an investigation into Walmart for its role fueling the opioid epidemic as a pharmacy. All eligible local governments signed on to the Attorney General's $62.6 million resolution. The resources will be split equally between the state and local jurisdictions. Locally, this will include nearly $5.4 million for Grays Harbor, with $4.3 million going to the county, and just over $1 million for Aberdeen alone. The resolution is part of the $1.1 billion that the Attorney General's office has recovered from 11 companies that were alleged to have played a role in fueling the opioid epidemic. Washington State's money comes from an overall $3.1 billion multi-state resolution with Walmart. The companies, CVS, Giant Eagle, Walgreens, and Walmart, say they did nothing wrong in the way they dispensed highly addictive pain pills. But the jury trial now getting underway could expose them to billions of dollars in liability and huge risk to their reputations. Companies earn billions of dollars dispensing opioids while often failing to implement adequate safety and monitoring systems for high-risk medications. More than 500,000 people in the U.S. have died from overdoses since the late 1990s when drug companies, including pharmacies, began distributing far more opioid medications. Critics say they were reckless in the way they dispensed opioid pain pills, ignoring red flags as more and more people became addicted. Under the terms of the legally binding resolution, these funds must be used to combat the opioid epidemic, including fentanyl. This means that it would be well used in constructing a holistic and permanent shelter in town, a transitional housing community built by and for the unhoused, something with wraparound social services located on-site. One can hardly imagine a more perfect use of these funds than an outreach center based in a new shelter. Unfortunately, this money will be held by those who want to eliminate the unhoused rather than provide for their needs. They will likely fail to partner with the very unhoused community they claim to want to help, and will oppose their efforts to organize themselves and get what they need for themselves. And now it's time for our Radical News Roundup from other autonomous media organizations that we follow. Unicorn Riot is a decentralized, educational, 501c3, nonprofit media organization of journalists. 
Unicorn Riot engages and amplifies the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with accessible and non-commercial independent content. You can find the following articles on their website at unicornriot.ninja. September 4th. Wall of Forgotten Natives encampment revived after five years. Gets evicted. September 5th. Over 60 people indicted on RICO charges in Atlanta, allegedly promoting anarchist ideas. September 6th. Hundreds set to launch hunger strike inside Stewart Detention Center. September 7th. Civil disobedience inside Minnesota's Stillwater Prison. September 8th. Found dead following police encounter. Justin Teagan remembered. September 13th. Prisoners face retaliation for protest at MCF Stillwater. September 14th. Report. Prisoners strike at Oak Park Heights Canteen. September 15th. U.S. Department of Interior hosts California listening sessions on federal Indian boarding schools. September 19th. Family seeks answers months after Christian Rivera Coba's death in Anoka County Jail. September 21st. Distress Hotline Volunteer speaks on 500-plus dead from Pylos Shipwreck. September 26th. Uganda's death sentence on its LGBTI plus communities. September 28th. Queer migrants find shelter and community in Tijuana Collective House. It's going down and you're invited for what they sell it. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center for anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements across so-called North America. Their mission is to provide a resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. You can find the following articles on their website at itsgoingdown.org. August 30th, the opening statement, summer 2023. August 30th, announcing the first annual Sacramento Anarchist Book Fair and Rock Against Racism Benefit Show, November 5th. August 30th, banner drop in Oaxaca for the Week of Solidarity with Anarchist Prisoners. August 31st. Asheville police use new drone units to surveil grand opening of Anarchist Bookstore. September 2nd, William C. Anderson in conversation with Jonina and Lorenzo Irvin at another Carolina Anarchist Book Fair. September 3rd, In Contempt number 32, Running Down the Walls, Epona Rose Released, Prisoner Uprising in Milwaukee. September 4th, The Kit Carson Obelisk, Santa Fe's Cult-Like Worship of a Genocidal Human Trafficker and Murderer. September 6th, Georgia Attorney General brings RICO indictments against 61 activists. September 6. Coalition of Independent Unions takes to the streets in Portland for Trans Day of Solidarity. September 7. Old and Young Unite. No MVP. Pipeline fighters further delay work at Bradshaw Creek Crossing. September 9. Help support anti-authoritarian efforts in solidarity with migrants in Chicago. September 9. We make the community by defending it. Neighborhood resists eviction of homeless people by a local nonprofit board and business owners. September 9th, demonstrations in solidarity with Stop Cop City activists facing repression spread. September 11th, political persecution continues against Miguel Peralta in Oaxaca. September 11th, letter from anarchist prisoner Jorge York Escobar. September 12th, Block Cop City group issues calls for mass action to stop construction. September 13th, report back on Hamilton's abolitionist pride. September 13th, call to support DFW drag defenders in court against self-proclaimed Christian fascists. September 13th, Canadian Tire Fire No. 64, Fairy Creek Updates, Radical Pride, 
migrant prison hunger strike, and hashtag search the landfill solidarity. September 15th. Interview. UAW rank and filer as historic strike begins. September 15th. Inside the fascist lurch. Amanda Moore on going undercover within MEGA. September 18th. Report back from noise demo in Thurston County Jail. September 19th. Court moves against Eugene wrench strike as eviction defense continues. September 19th. Tank mobilizes 100 tenants to disrupt Berkeley landlords' obscene eviction celebration. September 19th. Running down the walls in Portland raises over $1.7,000 for political prisoners. September 19th. Heating up. An interview with Peter Gelderloos on climate change and the fight to change everything. September 21st. San Francisco hits the streets to oppose far-right anti-trans conference. September 21st. Three Pete's Cafes organized with IWW in California. September 21st, Running Down the Walls 2023, a report back from New York City. September 22nd, Pipeline Fighter denied bail after blocking MVP construction for three days. September 22nd, Report and Analysis on Mass Community Defense of Ottawa Schools Against Gender Fascists. September 25th, Mutual Aid and the Criminalization of Compassion. Humanitarian aid must never be a crime. September 25th, Report back. Anti-fascists turn up the heat on Mark Kaufman and Sarah Schaefer. September 25th. Food Not Bombs protests attempts to criminalize mutual aid on the sharing of free food. September 25th. Report back from Tacoma, Washington, Anarchist Book Fair. September 25th. New York City Stop Cop City protests disrupt award ceremonies honoring Georgia Governor Kemp. September 28th. Portland, Oregon Industrial Timber Conference disrupted by protesters. Windows busted out. Crime Thought is everything that evades control. Crime Think is a rebel alliance. Crime Think is a banner for anonymous collective action. Crime Think is an international network of aspiring revolutionaries. Crime Think is a desperate venture. Check out these articles at crimethink.com. September 5th, Understanding the RICO Charges in Atlanta. A sweeping indictment seeks to criminalize protest itself. September 15th, Introducing Ink Light for Zine Printing for when you need to make a little toner go a long way. September 19th, Solidarity Among the Displaced, How Russian Anarchists in Exile Supported Armenian Refugee Squatters. And finally, September 23rd, Anarchist Voices from Armenia and Azerbaijan on the Violence in Nagorno-Karabakh. Well, that does it for the news. When we come back, we'll be talking with Echo about the threats to access to abortion. But for now, here is Baby I Had an Abortion by Petrol Girls.
Welcome back to Molotov Now. We're joined today by our guest who is here to talk with us about abortion access. Can you introduce yourself, give us your pronouns, and talk about any relevant experience you want to bring up today? Absolutely. Thanks. I go by the name Echo, and my pronouns are she, her. I've been involved in supporting access to abortion health care in the Pacific Northwest for, gosh, more than a decade, for a really long time. And some of the ways that I've been engaged in this is as a clinic escort at an abortion clinic, as well as a variety of other ways supporting abortion and trying to thwart the growing presence of the anti-abortion movement that has just been relentless and very disappointingly having had huge success in terms of abortion access for Americans, in addition to doing work with abortion, probably like yourselves and most of your listeners, I do a variety of other mutual aid work as well. Great. So I've been following the abortion news um, on a peripheral level, but can you bring us and our listeners up to speed on what all has been happening since Roe v. Wade was overturned? Yeah, that was back in June 22 when what was called the Dobbs ruling functionally overturned Roe v. Wade. And on that day, one in three Americans, boom, instantly lost access to abortion as health care. Since then, it's only gotten worse. Um, the states, and I'm talking about the red states, continually have been chipping away, even since then, only less than about 15 months ago, at abortion access in the states that still had some level of access. There's been increasing number of bans as well as a rollback week by week of um, when people can access abortion health care. And so where we're at today is pretty dire. There are 25 states that either outright ban or severely restrict abortion access. And these restrictions are such that there's just functionally inaccessible for just about any pregnant person in that state to access abortion health care. Are there any uh, states that you want to speak of in particular? We do have a little bit of good news in the Pacific Northwest to talk about. Um, Oregon and Washington continue to have access to abortion. Um, in fact, we have just we have the best access of the country, but that does not mean that we don't have to continue to fight, that we don't have to continue to stand up, and we don't have important actions that we need to take in terms of abortion rights and abortion access. Because as access falls in the other states, the Pacific Northwest, and really in this context, I mean Oregon and Washington, because uh, Idaho is is a loss. There's, you know, uh, Idaho doesn't have access to abortion at this time. And then the last I heard anything out of uh, out of Idaho, they uh, uh, that like removed the like an incest and other uh, oh, exemptions. Right, right. But in terms of us in the Pacific Northwest, we have become so important for the country as a refuge for abortion health care. So we have people driving multiple states to reach either Oregon or Washington and flying from almost every other state, uh, every other red state um, to come here for abortion health care. So Oregon and Washington continuing to stand up and hold the line is not about only taking care of our own 
friends in this state, but really everyone nationwide um, who needs abortion health care. And traveling to Oregon and Washington is not an easy thing for most people. It's a huge burden. And I'm frankly offended by it. Abortion is health care and having it be taken away puts an undue burden, particularly on people with fewer resources. And this is very much planned by the people who are taking away abortion rights because they know that a huge percentage of people who need to access abortion health care won't be able to. What needs to happen? You find out that you're pregnant and you have a minimum wage job. You might already have a couple of kids. Um, a significant portion of people who seek abortion already have uh, one or more children. So you're going to need to take time off of a job that doesn't probably provide you paid time off. You're going to need to figure out a road trip or money for a flight, get that time off work, figure out a place to stay, figure out childcare for your other children. And then there's the cost of the abortion itself, which is somewhere between $300 to $700. This is a package that most people simply can't take on, and especially with no notice. Yeah, that's got to be real hard for working class and low-income people to afford. So these bans and restrictions on abortion end up equaling forced parenthood and a complete loss of choice and body autonomy for a huge number of Americans. Yeah, and you can definitely see that the impetus is control of people as opposed to actually anything to do with um you know, life or children, because with all the fervor with anti-abortion activists, you rarely see them, you know, participating in anything that has to do with afterbirth care. Absolutely. We've uh, at various times, as I'm a clinic escort, I laugh because it is a little bit amusing to see the hypocrisy uncovered that you instantly sensed was there, that there is not a uh, a true desire to save the babies, as they would state. Um, it's really about control. So I've had um, just passerbys come up as um, the clinic that I will escort at has been surrounded by anti-abortion protesters. And I'll hear people say, oh, actually, I'm doing a fundraiser right now for a children's charity. Would you like to participate and the protesters never have any interest in that. Or sometimes I'll hear people ask, um, oh, are you guys foster parents or uh, in what ways are you helping with kids, you know, that are out there with needs? And they never are because it's never actually about the kids. It is about controlling people. And a lot of it, these anti-abortion folks are really what you're probably picturing. They're religious. They're all about Christo-fascism. They are the same people that are trying to take over the school boards with their panic about the gay agenda, as they would put it. They're the same people who are trying to shut down drag shows and drag story hours. Those are the same people who are at the clinics whinging on inauthentically about their concern for pre-born life, which is their phrase. Yeah. So a lot of what you came on to talk about today was what happens once a person actually gets to a state that does provide abortion. 
because a lot of your work centers around escorting people once they've reached the clinic. What sort of groups do you guys see out there protesting for the most part? Right. The types of folks that we see protesting against abortion are without fail religious and Christian. They tend to be in two separate groups that um, come at different times and don't work together. A huge group with a lot of activity are Catholic-based, and the second group is evangelical. The Catholics are running a campaign twice a year now that's called the 40 Days for Life protest. And this started out originally um, a number of years ago, I think about a decade ago, literally corresponding with um, the Catholic holiday of, of Lent. It's a it has a 40 day cycle and it's in February and they would come out every single day for the 40 days and pray at and protest and hassle clinic patients. And it was so successful from their viewpoint that they added on a second one. Um, so there's one in the fall and one in the spring. And the fall 40 days for life just kicked off a couple of days ago um, on September 27th, and it'll go through November 5th. And what that means for the vast majority of abortion clinics, which in the Pacific Northwest tend to be Planned Parenthoods, and then we have a handful of independent clinics. What that means is that for many patients coming to an appointment, which could be an abortion, could just be that um, they need to renew their birth control, could be gender affirming care. For whatever reason, somebody's coming to a clinic, they have to walk through this gauntlet of people holding signs and hassling them and chastising them and disparaging them. And it is just unacceptable to me. People should be able to access health care without hassle. And uh, that's what calls me to stand out and get involved and help make the day a little bit easier for somebody who's just trying to do a very normal item on their to-do list, honestly. You know, it probably their their day is drop off something at the post office, get an IUD put in, and go to grocery shopping, then pick up my kid. But instead, they have to deal with these protesters that are screaming at them that God hates them for what they're doing. They're a murderer, all sorts of wackiness. Oh, that's awful. So this 40 days of life, is that a national action or is that just regional in the Pacific Northwest? It is national. It is all over the country. And um, now that it's twice a year, that's 80 days out of the year that people have to run this gauntlet of being hassled when they're just trying to access health care that should be a right. And there's actually talk by the 40 Days group that they're having so much success with this. There is talk of um, a three, what they're calling a 365 program, which, as the name implies, would be that we would have protesters every single day which is a very disheartening thought indeed. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of funding behind that effort. Is there any tracking of where the funding for that kind of stuff comes from? 
a lot of it comes from the churches themselves, from uh, the people that are attending the church and donating money to the churches. And that gets rolled into the fact that churches are tax exempt in this country, which I find strange and frustrating. Um, and then there's they have a lot of interesting ways of running their finances that they get all these tax bennies that a regular person like us or folks like us that are running small MAs like providing food to homeless. We would never have access to this, but the churches do. It's very frustrating. Well, and I was under the impression that churches couldn't retain their tax exempt status and po- participate in political sort of campaigns. And yet, I guess if it's framed as abortion is against their religious beliefs, that means it's more of a religious campaign and less of a political one. That's how they allow them to get around that. That's how they uh, position it for sure. Well, now after we've talked about the Catholics and the 40 days for life campaign that they put on twice a year that they're threatening to put on 24 seven all year long. Um, let's also talk about another key category of protester at the abortion clinic, which is the evangelicals. We have a lot of evangelicals. In fact, I tend to run into the evangelicals more than the Catholics, except for when it's 40 days for life. And these are the folks that give more of a Westboro vibe. They will have graphic signs with um, a lot of blood and mutilated body parts and really get in people's faces. Much more aggressive, I find, for the patients trying to access care. And the evangelicals tend to be more often aligned with using Proud Boys for security. And um, that, of course, causes a lot more danger for patients trying to access health care. And um, this is really a rising concern um, in the Northwest, Proud Boys, of course, in general, um, and their alignment with anti-abortion groups. And it all, of course, has nothing to do with babies. It is all about, you know, hetero, cis, male dominance in their view, the world that they're trying to create or go back to in their view. But of course, we all know it wasn't ever a world that was. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a likely pairing um, just at first glance, but that is concerning. It's uh, I think it's similar to the saying the um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So for these two groups, they both have the same goal of having a power structure that's based on heteronormative standards that's white, that's male. And so they align on enough of those issues that they have um, joined forces. Uh, is there any <laughs> other civilian groups outside of the Proud Boys that are aligning with these churches, the evangelical or Catholic? There, Well, we see three percenters um, sometimes as well, but I would kind of group them in with the Proud Boys, but I'll, I'll see um, folks with the three percenter insignia helping out um, the antis. We here in the Northwest, we have another group of concern that's uh, pretty well organized and pretty well funded. And they go by the acronym TCAP, which stands for the church at Planned Parenthood. And 
while they are primarily based in the Northwest, they have been spreading and growing and getting some national connections. And there's actually a a really well-funded church uh, way over in uh, Tennessee that is aligned with them um, that is kind of like has sprouts of more the Church of Planned Parenthoods. And here's what this group does. They call themselves a church so that when they stand in front of Planned Parenthood with their hateful rhetoric, they can say that they're having a church service and that they're not protesters because there's some places where there's rules that you can't be. They have to stay X number of feet away from the door of a business if you're a protester, but they're saying that this is their church service. And TCAP has definitely aligned with the Proud Boys as security numerous times, including um, one that was um, definitely got news attention. It was in Salem, Oregon, a couple of summers ago, and there ended up being a lot of violence. Uh, I mean, people were hospitalized from from the violence from the Proud Boys at that event. And um, what sort of dynamics does the religious nature of these protesters bring up in regards to those supporting the right to abortions? Definitely all of the signs that are being held and the rhetoric that is being really yelled out at at patients is based on a very fire and brimstone Christian perspective, very literally believing in demons and evil. We had one, there was a big rally after the Texas SB8, that was um, back in uh, 2021, when that was when Texas blocked abortion access. This is before Roe fell. And a lot of cities around the country had a rally in support of abortion rights and um, in solidarity with, with Texas. And the local anti-abortion folks were so scared of this rally that they thought was led by Antifa, when in reality it was 5,000 people in the specific Northwest city were joining together. They put out warnings uh, that they weren't going to pray at the clinic that day because they literally believed that anybody who was in black block was, and I'm this is not figurative language from them, was literally possessed by demons. And they were so worried for their the safety of their parishioners that they decided that they all needed to stay home that day because there was going to be too many people out in black block. And they actually even sent around to the anti-abortion protesters who would have otherwise have been at the clinic that day. They sent around special prayers for them to say to protect themselves from Antifa and from anybody in black block. So if we all just dress in black, they fuck off. Yes. Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, I've seen it happen. <laughs> yeah, you can always play into their fears, I guess. Yeah, I imagine that, that this is really an existential sort of thing for them if they really believe the rhetoric that they're putting out and that's in the Bible. This has got to be like a good versus evil sort of thing for them, not just a political left versus right sort of thing. I see a range. I see folks that are there praying and seem to truly believe it. Then I see people that are like um, a little bit more in the background who are, I believe, using 
those religious fears more for their own aims. And that has more to do with like preserving the power structure. That's more of a 1950s power structure that they they wish the country would go back to. Well, yeah. And you see a lot of propagandists on the right co-opting Christian language, I think because that sort of extreme rhetoric lends itself to extreme action. What examples of that level of violence can you share with us? Because I know that there's some of the most violent anti-abortion actions have occurred around this topic. Absolutely. The violence at clinics, at abortion clinics, by anti-abortion protesters is a very serious issue. Um, In the past, um, let's see, 35 years at abortion clinics, there's been 11 murders of abortion doctors and similar clinic staff. So 11 murders by the anti-abortion protesters who allegedly just care about saving lives, except for those 11 people they murdered. There's also been 42 bombings of abortion clinics. There's been 200 arson attacks. There's been about 500 clinic invasions. That's when people will um, rush into the clinic um, during hours that the clinic is is um, open and try to shut it down from the inside. Lots of assaults and burglary burglaries, um, and these are these affect the providers, the clinic workers, patients, and volunteers, um, such as myself as a clinic escort. I've been assaulted by anti-abortion protesters myself as well. Yeah, I've heard that being a staff in the clinics is an incredibly dangerous job and something that people don't take very lightly. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus, those numbers are absolutely heinous. Um, One tactic that I've read about that I've uh, seen them employing on top of uh, direct violence and protest uh, has been these fake clinics. Uh, Could you tell us more about them? Uh, I've yet, yet to find too deep of information. Oh, absolutely. This one is so insidious and actually pretty chilling. So the anti-abortion groups nationwide, this is not a Pacific Northwest problem, nationwide have set up fake clinics. Sometimes they go by the name crisis pregnancy centers, CPCs. You'll see them referred to sometimes, but they set up fake clinics. And a lot of times they're very close to an actual abortion clinic, um, like on the same block, and they will try to mimic the uh, the signage to look very similar to a real clinic. But these are not a place where anybody can get actual health care. They are literally set up specifically to trick pregnant people into coming to their clinic and then not being able to access an abortion. There are actually 2,600 fake clinics in the U.S. right now. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we have quite a few. For example, I know that in Oregon, there are 45 of these fake clinics. So consider the fact that there's 45 fake clinics in Oregon. You might be wondering how many real clinics there are, clinics where somebody could actually get abortion health care. 45 fake clinics, there's only a half dozen real clinics. When you zoom out nationwide, you have the 2,600 fake clinics nationwide, but only 780 real clinics. 
and fewer all the time because um, in red states, clinics are shutting their doors. So what happens at a fake clinic? They will put up signs offering free pregnancy tests, excuse me, free pregnancy tests. So a young person or really anyone, but they do seem to target um, young people. A lot of times they'll be set up near high schools. They will offer free pregnancy tests and then they will try to delay the person from getting health care and, in fact, even lie to the person. So in these fake clinics in a red state where there might be a cutoff of, say, six weeks for abortion or eight weeks, they'll do the pregnancy test, they'll do an ultrasound, and then they'll tell the person, oh, congratulations, you're four weeks pregnant. But in actuality, they might be five weeks, they might be seven weeks, and they will lie specifically so that the person doesn't have the same urgency because there's a cutoff in that state of uh, how many weeks they can get an abortion. And they'll run out of time before they realize they were lied to and end up with, you know, a complete loss, loss of body autonomy and forced parenthood. Does this or, not fall under like medical malpractice? Well, they're not actually a medical clinic. Any, they don't have anybody on staff who's actually medically trained. They just have a sign that'll say something. Um, I mean, they have, gosh, there's so many of them nationwide. You know, it'll be like women's health care or women's clinic. And they don't actually do anything. Um, they don't have, um, so they don't have to follow rules because they're not actually a clinic. When we were researching the fake clinics for some education that we were doing in a group that I was part of, a person in our group shared about a local 16-year-old who was very outraged when they found out that the clinic next door to their high school was a fake clinic. And that 16-year-old decided to go check it out for themselves. This happened um, about two years ago. So the 16-year-old goes into the clinic right after school and says that that they wanted a pregnancy test. That person knew that they weren't pregnant, but they wanted to see what would happen in the clinic. And um, while they were waiting to find the test results back, um, they were asking the fake clinic if they could get access to birth control. And the clinic said no. They asked, well, can I at least have condoms if you can't prescribe me birth control. And the clinic said, no, we won't give you any condoms. And then while they were still waiting to find out if they were pregnant or not, although the person knew that they weren't, they were not, but the clinic assumed they thought they were, the clinic staff told them, you're going to make such a good mommy. Don't you worry about anything else. Don't you worry about birth control because you're going to be a really good mommy. What the hell? They don't know nothing about this person. No. And that's what you get at a fake clinic. That's, it's that's heinous. That is great. Well, if you think that's heinous, hold on to your hats because I want to drop some more information about these fake clinics on you guys. And this part gets real maddening real fast. These fake clinics get tax funding. What? How? I, Under... <laughs> I wish. I Under wish I could what? explain it in a way that made sense to me. They, 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 it's obviously not as a medical thing if they're not medical places and they can't get. No, what? I, I know. I know. I I share your outrage and uh, it puts some fire in my belly. For example, 
there is a organization called First Image that runs three fake clinics around one um, metro area here in the Pacific Northwest. And through research into IRS documents, because you're not going to, you know, if you ask the clinic, they're not going to answer you on how much money they're getting from the, the government, but you can pull their IRS documents. This organization, which runs three fake clinics in the past handful of years, they have gotten are you guys ready for this number? No, oh, no. $2.1 million in taxpayer funding. Just these three fucking clinics. Yes. Yes. And uh, I'm sorry to upset you a little bit more, but do you remember those government loans during COVID uh, that were called? Oh, uh, they got one of the PPP loans or whatever yeah, it was? They got one of the PPP loans for $200,000. I'm sure I'm sure the MA you and I were doing, we, we got a lot too, right? Right? No, <laughs> not you? Not me either. This group of um, fake clinics that go by the name First Image, they got $200,000 of that government COVID loan and it was forgiven. They did not have to pay it back. Oh my God. That's money that could have gone to schools, to actual health care, to harm reduction, to housing the homeless. Um Instead, it went so that they could continue to pat a 16-year-old on her knee and say, you're going to make a good mommy. That's, I don't have words. I know. I know. This is why I have so much passion to continue working in this area and trying to shed light on this and um, make sure that Oregon and Washington continue to be a refuge for abortion access and hopefully nationwide, but I um, got to focus on on the Northwest for now. So what can other people do who want to join in that fight for abortion rights? Being educated about the problem is a great way to start, which is what we're um, talking about here today. Um, there's ways that you can get involved on the ground. Um, you can check out the twice a year 40 day events they're in the fall and the spring each year uh the anti-abortion groups have a website they publicly share their dates you can keep your eye out for when that happens swing by whichever clinic is is closest to you on your route in life you can go and gather a couple friends and um maybe stop by and help these anti-abortion protesters feel a little less comfy hassling patients because so often I find, especially as a clinic escort, that um, there's very different interactions when I'm there alone versus when there's a group of folks with me, either other um, escorts or um, community members will often pass by and be glad to see a clinic escort out there and hang out with me for a little bit. Um, versus when I'm alone, the um, anti-abortion folks are much more aggressive. So I can only imagine what it's like for a patient who shows up when there's not an escort and there's nobody else around. Um, it's got to be a pretty um, unpleasant experience. So all of us can um, show up and maybe help the 40 days folks have a less comfy time there. Uh, people who want to do even more um, in that role, they could see if their local abortion clinic has um, needs for more clinic escorts. They could sign up for that. There's also ways for folks could help either volunteer with or 
give financial help to groups that are helping folks who need to travel from out of state who need abortion care. There's groups where you can give rides to folks who are flying in. It just helps their budget go further if they don't have to spend money on on Ubers and and such. If there's volunteers who will give rides to and from one of the really great groups we have for that here in the Northwest is a group called. um, So you'll want to get out a pencil if you're listening right now, because this is a really great group you'll want to look up. They're called Cascade Abortion Support Collective. They go by the name CASC. Cascade Abortion Support Collective. And they do really amazing work helping folks access abortion care who need to come from farther away. Although they also absolutely help local, more local folks who also need access. You know, perhaps they don't have a car or don't have, uh, maybe they have to travel from a small town that's farther away. If they need to come from a rural area, um, they'll also help people within the state. So it's uh, both within and with and outside of the state. There's a lot of really great organizations to donate money to. There's another one that I'm very um, comfortable recommending called the Northwest Abortion Access Fund. You can look them up. They do amazing work helping get people from other states where there's no abortion access, getting them to where they need to be to an abortion sanctuary state, such as we have here. And um, I would highly recommend both of those groups. Then there's other smaller things um, that you can do that still matter. Coming up pretty soon here in about a couple weeks, on October 17th, there is an event that another anti-abortion group runs. This one is called Students for Life. And on October 17th, it's something called Chalk Day. This isn't as big of a deal as, say, running a gauntlet of um, protesters who have plan- who have Proud Boys standing next to them, but it can still be a, a, a bummer. On Chalk Day, these groups go out to clinics, any abortion clinics, and cover the sidewalk with different messages like, you know, don't go in here, you're murdering your baby, and things like that. And um, it's just kind of a bummer to have to see. And frankly, I don't think people should have to see that shit. So what I usually do on these days is myself and a, and a friend will stop by all of our local clinics that are within driving distance. And I'll just have some gallons of water in my car and a push broom and, uh, just splash the water on their chalk bullshittery and, um, use the push broom and, and it clears it away. And I don't even necessarily talk to the folks in the clinic, but almost every time a clinic person will come out and say, thank you so much. That has been bugging us all day. That has been bugging our patients all day. And it's a small thing, um, but it feels good to do it. What other roles can uh, direct action play in the struggles for healthcare access, such as Jane's Revenge or other groups? Mm. Well, I think direct action can make a huge difference Uh, But it's probably important for folks to hook up on direct actions with a group of people who they already know and trust, their friends, their comrades, and definitely any direct actions that are people are taking part in, they'll want to keep OPSEC in mind. I think you guys have some tools that could help folks on that. Yeah, I know CrimeThink has a really in-depth direct action guide that goes into a lot of detail on what it takes to pull off a successful action. The other thing that I think 
I want to recommend for people to consider. And I think this is a really important thing that people can do directly in these times where abortion access is under such threat. And that is there are ways to access abortion medications and keep them on hand for yourself and the people in your life such that if access changes or if somebody you know is in a place with limited access, that we can all help each other out. It's really the heart of mutual aid. And I'm about to tell you how you can access medication abortion meds in all 50 states. So once again, get out your your pencil or your phone because you're going to want to keep this information handy. So there is a group called aidaccess.org. So that's A-I-D-A-C-C-E-S-S. And you can order medication abortion in all 50 states, even the the red states, even the bad states. (laughs) And you can keep it on hand in case you, you find for yourself or somebody else that you need it. It does take a little bit of effort, but it's achievable by most people. It does I'll right off the top, I will say there is a little bit of uh, financial privilege involved. It does cost $150 to order these medications. If you consider that a medication that uh, going to a clinic for medication abortion is going to be between $300 and $700, and that's if you live in the same city as a clinic. Um, if you don't live in the same city as a clinic, then the cost goes way up because you have to travel and take off work and all of that. But in order to access medication abortion, you would go to that website aidaccess.org. And you're going to have to provide some information. And it's actually going to have to be real information because you're going to have to um, send your ID, um, which is another layer of, of, of privilege. You'd have to have um, an ID, but you'll need to give your real name, your real address, your real birth date, and you would need to have an address that you could um, be uh, able to get the receive the mail order from. And what you're going to do on the form is ask for medication abortion as advanced provision. In this case, advanced provision means the person is not currently pregnant, but wants to keep medication on hand in case they need it in the future. And totally on the up and up, this organization wants to help you out and um, will send you the meds. And then you can keep them on hand for yourself or somebody else who might find themselves with more limited access or no access. I also want to talk about the fact that you can keep on hand emergency contraception. So this is what a lot of times people call plan B. This is not abortion. This is um, if somebody had a condom break or um, wasn't expecting to um, have sex and ended up having um, unprotected sex in the first 72 hours. If you take emergency contraception, you will probably not end up pregnant. So a lot of people call it plan B, but it's also known as emergency contraception. And that can also be ordered ahead of time. If you realize in a panic, you need to run out to say target and pick it up. It's going to put you back $50, which is a huge bummer. But if you order it ahead of time, you actually can get a three pack for $20 and that includes shipping. So you can keep one at home for yourself and pass out two to friends all for just 
20 bucks. And where you can order that, a lot of different places, but the place I found with the best price is called lifesciencespharmacy.com. And you can get a three pack, like I said, for just $20. So planning ahead, protecting yourself, protecting others, sharing what you have. I think it's all really beautiful mutual aid. Yeah, I think now that you mention it, that's something that might be well folded into local harm reduction efforts is just caring, always having on hand some sort of emergency contraception and or medication abortion pills. Absolutely. Um, One really nice thing about using these things in a mutual aid way, in a kind of pay it forward way sometimes, is that these all do have expiration dates. So with the medication abortion, there's about a two-year, roughly two-year expiration date on one of the medications, a longer on the other. Uh, Medication abortion takes a combination of two pills. So functionally, there's a two-year clock ticking when you might have gotten this as advanced provision. So using it in a mutual aid way means, you know, maybe somebody has used it and then you order again, or maybe you pay it forward. And same with the emergency contraceptives. I know I've been part of different mutual aid efforts, especially during the heart of the pandemic. I would, I used to go and to the little free pantries and free fridges, and I would drop off containers of condoms and leave them there in the way somebody else might leave a a container of granola bars. I would leave a container of condoms when I've had an overabundance of the of the plan B of the emergency contraceptive. I'll also drop those off at um, places like the the free pantries to get them out. And I know that different cities with their networks of mutual aid um, will help each other with plan B. Somebody might put out a call and then somebody else will deliver plan B and then kind of replenish their supply. So these things are never expiring before they were used. That's great. And the cost savings is so huge. Like you said, compared to what, three to $700 for an abortion. And that's if 20 that's pills if for would... three, three, three pack no. for 20 pills. Or even if you have to go with the medical abortion, it saves you hundred, hundreds of dollars, not to mention thousands if you have to travel out of state or tens of thousands if you actually end up having to have the child. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that if it's not what you wanted, that's total bullshit. Yeah. It's your body. Well, I think that there are a lot of threats to abortion uh, nationwide, obviously, but even here in what is often thought of as relatively safe in terms of abortion access in Oregon and Washington in the Pacific Northwest, um, we continue to be under attack from anti-abortion efforts, and they're well-funded, they're well-organized, but I have confidence in um, the community on the left that we also really know how to organize, and we know how to take action. So I'm hopeful for the future here in the Northwest. Yeah, and it does, I mean, I don't, want to recommend being reactionary, but it does seem wise to sort of see where the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and those on the right are headed and take note. And if they're commingling and getting aligned with these anti-abortion activists, then it makes perfect sense for anti-fascists and people on the left to also get involved in defending those rights and those clinics. 
Absolutely. I, th- I think it's valuable and important work. And I thank you for doing it. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to share this. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast today and sharing your knowledge and expertise about this topic, as well as all those really great resources. I think that the idea of having that stuff on hand is really important. And the more mutual aid collectives that are thinking about how to plug into the abortion rights movement, the better. Agreed. Thank you so much. It's time for a musical break, but when we come back, we will have an after-action report from Riot Dad on the 40 Days for Life counter-protests going on in the Pacific Northwest right now. But for now, here is Abortion is Normal by No Fun. Hit it!
So in our last interview with Echo before this one, they taught us a lot about state of abortion and women's clinics and really educated and schooled us in the details around the struggle. What lessons would you say are to be learned from this after action, after school special? I think the most important thing that I take away from this, right, uh, as as someone obviously without a uterus, is that, you know, my opinion on this you know, uh, is, is just like, look, I'm not seeking gender affirmation care. Right. Um, you know, I'm old as shit. I got kids. I've had my vasectomy, right? Like, like I'm done. Um, I, I'm fortunate enough to have insurance that allows me to, you know, go to a, a physician of my choice. Right. Um, so as somebody who doesn't fully need these resources, um, it's it's not up to me to 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 have an opinion on where these resources should go, where this money for these resources should be allocated. Right. Uh, what it is up to me is is uh, to stand with our comrades who are in need of these services, not to speak over those comrades, to listen to those comrades, to take direction uh, from those comrades and to to not show up as an ally, but to show up as an accomplice. Uh, and make sure that these rights aren't stripped away from them. Well, I'm glad you guys are out there doing the work. And I'm really impressed by some of the original tactics you guys have been employing. I think that the idea of turning their presence in these spaces into something that actually physically generates money for the cause that they're there to protest against is genius and will, I believe, prove effective. Is there any way that you would recommend people who are listening and are either nearby a clinic or nearby Vancouver to plug in and get involved? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, go, go, go to their website, right? Get on the 40 days for life website, find out where they're going to be, find out when they're going to be. One of the great things about that is they'll give a number that you can call and reach out to, uh, or an email address. We've all got throwaway emails. We can all get, you know, a Google number, um, call, like talk to these folks, tell them, yeah, I'll show up. I'll bring three or four. Right. Because if you're going to bring three or four, maybe they tell somebody they can have the day off. And when you don't show, you know, that makes their numbers weaker. Um, but, but their information is there of where they're going to be, when they're going to be all over the Pacific Northwest. And I would then call that clinic where it says they're going to be and ask what those needs are. You know, uh, if you can't show up and you can't be out there, we get it, right? We can't all do that. We can't all be out there every day. Uh, some of us can't stand for that long. Some of us can't be seen in public doing this, right? Um, but maybe you could make a donation. Maybe you could drive by and drop off a couple of bottles of water to the people who are out there, right, doing these things. Um, so there's always a way to get involved, right? Let's call our clinic and find out what those are. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time out of your day to talk to us today. Learning what's going on on the ground at these actions is just as important as learning the reasons why we need to be at these actions in the first place. We need to be able to match our theory with our praxis. Absolutely. And, and you know, every time we're out there, we walk away and we learn something and, and someone always has a new idea. Uh, just printing out these QR codes was was absolutely brilliant. And and it's something that's just so simple, right? Um and, and as you alluded to, it's, it's super effective.
So uh, the, the more we're out there, the more people we have out there, uh, the more opportunities we have to make each one more successful and more meaningful. Awesome. Well, thank you. And we hope to see you out there on the ground again. Yo, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Y'all reach out anytime y'all want to come down. We've always got something else going on. Will do. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and connect the happenings in our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from, and we know you have much to teach us. If you would like to come on the show, please email us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Molotov Now, and we will be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. Don't forget, if you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash AO1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. You have to go check out the amazing shirts up at feralthreads.square.site. All sales from these shirts are also donated to our comrades with the Black Flower Collective. Thank you. We would like to give a shout out to our friends at the South Florida Anti-Repression Committee who have launched a solidarity campaign for two individuals facing 12 years for an alleged graffiti attack on a fake Christian anti-choice clinic that does not provide any reproductive care. This federal overreach and use of the FACE Act, an act meant to protect people visiting reproductive clinics from harassment, is unprecedented. To support this solidarity campaign, please visit bit.ly backslash free our fighters. We want to thank the Black Flower Collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts. To support them or learn more, their website is blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. Collectiva, the anarchist Mastodon server, is growing faster than ever thanks to Elon Musk's stupidity as many activists close their accounts for bluer skies, as can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on IGD's socials. Join at collectiva.social. That's K-O-L-E-K-T-I-V-A dot social. And follow us and other online activists on decentralized, federated internet. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network is holding a fundraiser for their weekly meals with Food Nut Bombs. To donate, visit linktree backslash CR Mutual Aid Net. The communique is looking for artist and author submissions. Please write to sabo underscore media at riseup.net to submit your entry. Sabotage Noise Productions will be throwing a benefit concert at The Chuck in Bremerton to support Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network this July 20th at 8 p.m. Check out Facebook for more info. As reported previously, Katie Hussey is still struggling in the wake of harassment by Dayton police that has cost her her employment and housing. Luckily, the charges have been dropped, but she has lost everything because of this and still faces an uphill battle in getting back on her feet. Please send any donations to Venmo at Katie Hussey, that's K-A-T-Y-H-U-S-S-E-Y, or Cash App Katie Hussey to help them during this time. Thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio in our show notes. And finally, thank you to the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. We are proud to be members of a network that creates and shares leading critical analysis, news, and actions from an anarchist perspective. Remember to check out Sabo Media's website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice, and go ahead and make the switch to federated social media on the Collectiva Mastodon server today. At Aberdeen Local 1312 for updates on Sabo Media projects such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Communique, the Sabo Tours, our podcast Molotov Now, 
and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay and neuter your cats, and don't forget to cast your votes at those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Molotov Now, signing off. 